and swimming power. And even as our children go back to school, return back to school, we want to reiterate in their hearts, we want to instill in their hearts that the wisdom of God's word, what God's word teaches, is greater than any lesson, any, anything that can be taught by this world. And when their worlds collide, when, when what the world says and what the Bible is saying, when it collides, that they will know the difference, that they are able to discern the difference, and they're able to say God's word is superior to everything else. And that's our desire for our children. And for ourselves, it's a reminder that God's word is something that we can't do our life without. We've been trying to say this again and again. You know, we look at God's word and we say, and I'm trying to read it, I can't understand it, and so we tend to set it aside. But the idea of God's word is not that. The idea of God's word is you have to labor. You have to say, I'm going to spend time when I realize that this is important, that I can't do without it. That's the idea that we want to take away at the end of this study uh, so that our, lesson, our, our life is well lived uh, and for his glory. See, Ed Spurgeon had this to say about God's word. He said, the Bible is the vein of pure gold, unalloyed by quartz or any earthly substance. It's a star without a speck, a sun without a blot, a light without darkness, a moon without its paleness, a glory without its dimness. Oh, Bible, it cannot be said of any other book that it is perfect and pure, but of thee we can declare all wisdom is gathered up in thee without a particle of folly, that this is the judge that ends the strife where wit and reason fail. This is the book untainted by any error. It is pure, unalloyed, perfect faith. I'm not sure how much of it you caught. But the truth of this is this, that once we get to know about God's word, if we recognize this as God's word, we want to be able to say with the psalmist, the psalmist recognized that God's word he cannot do without. God's word is what keeps him from sin. God's word is what he has hidden in his heart that a, as a young man that he doesn't sin. You know, that were true for him and for Spurgeon and people like that through the centuries. Our, our prayer is that it would be true for us. This is God's word that we will learn to love and to obey God's word just like the psalmist did. I'm not sure if you knew, but each year uh, Google puts out this uh, video of the words in the year, it's called, like the most common searches uh, that Google had. It is said that there are about 40,000 searches every second. That's 3.5 billion search every year. Every day, sorry, 3.5 billion searches every day. So now think about the number of searches people are doing, and they put out this list of top 100. Faith, Bible, God does not appear in the top 100. So we live in times when it's so secular that it's not at the top of the recall. And we are sending our kids to this world. We go into this world. We ought to be in the world, but not part of the world. And the only way we can differentiate, the only way we would know what is right, what is wrong, is by looking at God's word. 
So I want to draw your attention to the passage that we have in front of us, which is from verse 65 to 72. It's called Teth. This letter starts, the, all of those stanzas start with the word Teth, which is the ninth word. It's the word for purity. And I love it because as we look at God's word, the idea is that the end goal of our lives is so that we would be made pure. We would be made holy as we are conformed to Jesus Christ. That we are washed of water through the word as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. And so in this passage, we want to really look at what it's called the God, your good and you're good. God, you're good, and you do good, and you do good. Now, I want to draw our attention to three words that keep coming up again and again. One is good. It appears about five times. The second word is teach. It appears about three times. And there's another word called suffering. It appears again and again, or at least two times very clearly. Good, teach, and suffering. And so these are the three things that we want to look at and see what God's word has for us from this passage. Let's just turn to the Lord in prayer so that he would speak to us and that he will uh, cast his light, his gospel light, into our hearts. Father, we, we come, Lord. We, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Would you hide me behind the cross? Not my words, not my thoughts, not my discernment, not my knowledge. Not me, Lord, not me, but unto you be all glory. You be the teacher. You be the one who will show us, Lord, the, the, the great and majestic, majestic word as it is, Lord. Lord, would you teach us, Father? We thank you again. We thank you again. We thank you again. Thank you for hearing our prayers in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. So the first word, good. I want us to look at the word good. And it's a verse 65 and 60, uh, verse 65 and 66. It says, uh, what it says there is that you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. You, are, you have been good to your servant, and you do good, O Lord. Would you teach me? The testimony of the psalmist is this. He's saying that your testimonies have stood the test of time. They have been good. He begins the passage by saying it's good. It's been good. You see, the dilemma of the university students when they go off to university is that they want to match up the professor with the course, isn't it? Sometimes you have a great course you want to take, but the professor is like, oh my, is that the professor? And it's like, no, I don't want to take. Or sometimes you have a great professor, you're like, we want to study under that professor, but the, the course that he's going to take for that semester is not relevant to you. So every, every university student has this, you know, this conflict, as it were, to, like this, this, this tussle. I want a good professor, and I want this good course. And the psalmist is saying exactly that. He's saying, you're a great teacher, and what you teach is great. I've got this combination in God's word. You're a great teacher. You've, you've, you are good, and you do good. Both are excellent. But he doesn't stop there. As you get down to verse 69 and 70, 
he says, the insolence smear me with lies, but with, with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. You see, the arrogant would be unwilling, but I am willing. I, I want to learn from you, Lord. I want you to speak to me. I, I know you're good, your teaching is good, and I'm willing. The three things that are required for anything, any learning. And the psalmist recognizes that that's in God's word. So right at the offset, I think this should be our prayer. Recognizing God, your word is good. You, you are good. Your word is good. And Lord, would you give me this willing heart to learn? So that I would know I, my heart, my life would change accordingly. Because what I learn from you, the way you teach is good. So the first is good. The second is teach. Teach me, O Lord. You see, you are good. Your word is good. I'm willing, but now you have to teach me. He, he, he adds the fourth part to what the learning, uh, you know, what you need for learning. Teach me. Teach me, O Lord. And so we see that in verse 66. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. So the psalmist is saying, uh, would you teach me, Lord? Would you teach me from your word two things? What are the two things? Judgment and knowledge. Judgment and knowledge. Good judgment and knowledge. Two things. So we have to ask ourselves, what is this? What is good knowledge? Oh, good judgment, sorry. The first one is good judgment. Your translations might say goodness of reason, or it might say discernment. I like the word discernment. What does discernment mean? Like, what's discernment? Discernment, I want to say, is the ability to judge without being judgmental. I'll explain that, okay? The ability to judge without being judgmental. Ability to know what is right or wrong, that is to judge. We are called to judge. We are called to discern. We are called to identify what is right, what is wrong. And God, would you give me that discernment to be able to judge? When you, uh, uh, we, the other day we were at the grocery store. We were trying to pick up melons. We read somewhere that the way to pick up a melon is, you know, the part which connects to the plant, if that's dried up, then the melon is really ready to eat. We were given discernment about how to choose a melon. And God's word is saying, you want to know what is right or wrong? You want to know, you want to be able to judge right or wrong? You turn to God's word. It'll give you discernment. But that's the judge. The judging, so I can judge, I would know what it is. But I don't want to be judgmental because being judgmental is being self-righteous. It's a natural thing for us to be judgmental, isn't it? Because we have to really force ourselves. And I look at somebody and say, oh, I can do better than that. I'm better than that person. That's the sense of being judgmental. And that is what Jesus said against in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And the psalmist is praying and asking, Lord, help me to judge without being judgmental. Help me to discern. I want to know what is it that you call good so that I can call it good. What is it that you call evil? I'll call it evil. You be the one who teaches me that. 
And this is important, right? This is important for our children very much because, you know, from I don't know what age, but I was told that from very, very, very early on, and by the time they're into, uh, into their five years, they've already identified their templates of how they're going to behave. They're observing and they're absorbing. They're looking at people. They're, they're learning for themselves how they're going to behave. And I, and I pray this, that we would be, as parents, would be the ones, as, as a community here, we would be able to provide for them this template of, of, of life and how they would decide, how would they, how would they live life. That happens with children, but not just with children. You see, the thing is, um, uh, Joyce and I, we were reading an article by Paul Tripp, and he writes this beauty, beautiful article, and he calls it that we are all invited to a costume party. And he says that we live in a fallen world. We receive the ultimate invitation each day and every day. And uh, the article goes on to say that sin puts on a masquerade. Sin, Satan, he turns himself into like the angel of light. You see, we look at sin and we think that's good. We look at sin and we say that that's good for us. I mean, it's all right with me, but when I look at someone else, that very sin looks ugly. But with me, when I'm part of it, I'm okay with that. It's a mask. It, it, it just it looks good because it, we are in a costume party. Isn't that true? How do, how do I know what is right? How do I know what is wrong? Not by, not by seeking the wisdom of the world, but getting back into God's word. And it says, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, if, I, if you are my king, if you are my Lord, I want to know what you call right, what you call evil. And the psalmist is saying, would you give me that discernment? Would you give me that ability to understand and he gives some examples of, you know, how we can easily call it something else. He says, lust can masquerade as a love for beauty. Lust, you know, you, you see a, a handsome guy or a pretty girl and you want to look and, and that's lusting, but you say, oh, I'm just enjoying beauty. Gossip is a prayer matter. I want you to pray for this dear brother, dear sister. This is what they're going through. It's a prayer matter, but no, it's gossip. It's, it's sin masquerading as concern. The way I know what is right or wrong is only if I honor God by reading what he tells me in his word. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, if somebody can read that, that would be great. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it gives a very clear definition of how we can uh, differentiate between what is right and what is, what is wrong. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Someone can read that aloud, please. Right, God's word, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing or dividing the soul from the spirit. Listen to this. That, that itself is great because if you want to know the difference between your emotion, what's driving you, is it emotion that's driving you or whether it's God's word that's driving you, you need to get back to God's word because it's going to tell you what is emotion and what is true. It divides between the soul and the spirit. Soul that speaks to us about the emotion and the spirit that communes with the spirit of God in us that tells us what is right. And the only way, and the only way is joining with the psalmist and saying, give me that discernment. Teach me. Teach me. Teach me. And so, Lord, help us to discern your word, to know what is right, what is wrong. Help me, help me to understand what is it that you call good and what is it that you call evil. But n- notice, not just good judgment, but he says, what is knowledge? What is knowledge? What the psalmist is saying, not just what is right or wrong, but why it is right or wrong. You see, because it's important. It is important that we understand why it is wrong, and God's word is the one that will show us why it is wrong. The, the reason why we need to tell this to our kids, the reason why something is wrong is because they're going to be asked this question when they get back, uh, go to school. The reason for your faith. And so we want to show them what, which is discernment, and the why, which is the knowledge this article by Trevin Wax, he was writing and saying, we live in times when God's word is not just considered old-fashioned, but it's considered dangerous and repressive. This word in California library is banned because it's considered to be a hateful book. It might not be too long before that might happen in the place where you live. It's considered hateful, repressive. And so into that world, if you're going to send your children, if, if it's into that world we go, we want to be able to say why we believe God's word is superior to any knowledge that this world can ever throw back at us. Not just the what, but also the why. That's what the prayer of the psalmists. And, and so we're praying, Lord, you are good. Your word is good. You're the greatest teacher. Your word is better than anything else. You've given me a willing heart. So teach me, O Lord, what is right, what is wrong, and why it is right, and why it is wrong. So we've already established the word good, 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 five times. The psalmist recognizes this. This is something that I don't want to to just move away from. And then he says, teach me. Teach me. Help me understand. But then the third word that he uses often is the word suffering. And this might, this might resonate with some of us as I say this because uh, the psalmist recognizes that there is suffering. And he's saying, I'm willing to learn at all costs. Because your word is good, 
because you're a good teacher, because it's good for me, for my life, it gives me discernment, it gives me knowledge, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn this at all cost. I want to say a few things about suffering before I show you three things that the psalmist learns uh, from suffering. First, I wanted to understand that, this, that God uses suffering as a teaching tool, as a learning tool. And I, I, I'm using the word tool, not test. There's a difference between test and a tool. A test is something that you might use just, just for a short while and you're tested and you move on. That's a test. But a tool is a long term. It's not just, okay, I'm just, I'm just bracing for this thing to be over so I can move on with my life. And God's word would tell us that suffering sometimes is the life that he leads you through. There's a difference there. So test and tool. And I, want to, I want you to hear the words of Paul. If someone will turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10, if someone can read that. These are the words of Paul. And I want you to recognize that Paul himself is talking about the sufferings that he's going through. And he recognizes that it's not just a brief period, but it's continuous. So if someone's got that, would they read that, read that aloud? So that the life of Jesus would be made manifest. God uses suffering in the life of Paul. As he carries on the, the, the this death of Jesus, as it were, wherever he goes. That God would, be, God would use him to show the life of Jesus. So I want you to understand this one fact, right? Suffering, therefore, God uses as a tool. So let me give you three truths about suffering from God's word. One is that it's not a means of punishment. I want you to say this. Would you say this with me? Suffering is not a means of punishment. Suffering is not a means of punishment. I want you to understand this. Please, I want you to know that God is not punishing you with suffering. Because if he's punishing you, then it's double jeopardy. He's saying, I've already laid all of your punishment for your sin on Jesus Christ, and now I'm going to make you pay for it. That is not our God. So suffering is not a means to punish us. I want you to understand that. Because Romans 8, 1, we've been, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, it's for there is no condemnation, to them who are in Christ Jesus. Hold on to that verse. When, the, when that shameless devil comes and says that God's punishing you for, for whatever you've done or whatever you didn't do or your imagination it be, I want you to show this to the devil and tell him, shameless devil, get thee behind me. My God, your God is not the one who punishes, but he uses it as a tool, as we were reminded. So the second one, I want you to understand this truth. Suffering is a bad master, but a wonderful servant. 
It's a bad master and a wonderful servant. I want you to ask this question. Could you repeat that for, with me, please? A bad master and a good servant. You, you see what it is? When the suffering begins to master us, we are caught up. We, that's the end. Well, there's no hope. There's no courage. No strength. But suffering is not supposed to be the master. My master, your master, is the one who's supposed to use the suffering as his tool. So it's in his hands that this suffering becomes a great faithful servant, as it were, for my life, for your life. So it's not a master. It's a bad master. You don't want to make suffering your master. Don't let it overwhelm you because it's in the hands of your master. And the psalmist seems to have understood that. And he says, it is only in the hands of our good Lord that the suffering, listen to this, it's only in the hands of our good Lord does the suffering turn into a surgeon's scalpel that cuts away the gangrene of sin from our lives. It is painful, but it is life-giving. God can take that suffering and he can use it like the surgeon's knife to cut away this, the cancer, the gangrene in our lives. And we need him to do that. So that we can live. So we make sure that suffering does not hold us captive. Many years ago, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about Dan. I thought I'd talk about him when he wasn't here, but he just walked in. But uh, this is about when he was three years old. The cutest kid in the universe. <laughs> Still is. <laughs> it still is but I'll never forget this I want you to work with me on this alright we were just returning back from the park and I know he, he knows what I'm talking about and you know he's walking in front of us and he's, he is climbing the stairs as we get into our condo and I, I, it's just the silly urge that I had that I thought I'll give him a butt tap but it was a little forceful that it propelled him forward and his chin caught the edge of the step and it just burst out and blood gushing. Joyce is screaming, I'm screaming. We had to rush him to the hospital. We rushed him to the hospital and, and now the doctor says I have to stitch him up. He's a little less than three years old. And before the doctor can stitch him up, he had to get this real crazy looking needle for the local anesthesia. Joyce obviously can't take it. She turned away, she's crying, and I'm told to pin Dan down to the bed. So I'm pinning him down, holding him down. And I, I want you to think what's going on in Dan's mind. You, you, you know I'm hurting already. You know I'm bleeding already. Now what are you doing? Why, why are you pinning me down? And what, what's the doctor doing with that big needle? What, what's happening? And I get a sense sometimes that that's, my, that's what is the picture. The God is, is uh, to me. As he pins me down, he's saying that this is good for you, my son. It, it grieves me as I do this. But this is essential so that you can live, so that you can go past this and heal. 
He is the only one who can use the suffering as a tool. We cannot, when we try, it becomes a master. Suffering as a tool. The third truth about suffering is I'm grown as I groan. Want to say that with me? I'm grown as I groan. We've been looking at Romans chapter 8. We've been, we, we saw the three groanings that happened. The creation groans, the comforter groans, the Holy Spirit that is, and the Christian groans. The Christian is groaning, and it goes on to say later, it connects with, beautifully with that verse 29. It says so that we are conformed to the image of his Son. So we groan so that we grow into the image of Jesus Christ. And he says there's nothing that's going to happen for all things work together for good to them that love God. Would you believe that? Are you able to say amen to that? Amen. amen. Suffering. Suffering. Only in his hands. Not in mine, Lord. Not in my hand. And so the psalmist learns three things about suffering. In verse 67, it says, suffering has taught me to obey. Verse 67. Someone can read verse 67 of Psalm 119. Before I suffered, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but I now keep your word. I had this habit of sniffing out trouble. I just wanted to wander. My, I sit here, I want to listen to God's word, but my mind wanders. I, I go to school and I don't want to do what my friends are doing, but my feet and my hands wander. I had this habit of being a wanderer. But you have used your tool, the psalmist says, I used to go astray, but now I keep your word. And verse 66, it says, I, I, I keep your word not because it puts me out of trouble, but, but because I believe in your word, and I keep your word for it is good. Verse 68. It teaches me to obey. The second thing, verse 71, it says it teaches me gives me the ability to learn. It shows me, it gives me the, the motivation to learn, to pay attention. You see, for the arrogant who reject, in verse 69 and 70, the insolent smear me with lies, but my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. I had to read that quite a few times. Like, what is the psalmist trying to say? This is, is this the biblical fat shaming? Like, really? But no, this is not, this, you know, this is very different from the fat shaming that happens in the world out there. But to, to an effect, what it's saying here is, is like for them, the arrogant, for the insolent, God's word is like water of the duck's back. It, 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 doesn't impact them. It doesn't change them. It's like the pebble in the stream. It seems to surround them. It's all wet on the outside, but the moment you break the stone and pebble and look inside, it's all dry. But for me, but for me, you've captured my heart, my mind, my soul, my whole being. My whole being. May that be so, Lord. Then verse 72. 
your word has taught me the value, sorry, the suffering has taught me the value for your word. It says, it, it helps me prioritize your word. Your law is better to me than thousands of gold and silver. So I ask this question, what is it that we value most? What is our thousand pieces of silver? It's easy to read this and go past it, and it says, I value your word more than a thousand pieces of silver. But what is our thousand pieces of silver? Is it the rest? Is it comfort? Is it career? Is it, uh, you know, you ask yourself that question. Anxiety or, or worry, concern for the future. What's your idol? What gives you the most joy? Oh, may it be God's word. And I think that's the challenge that the psalmist is throwing at us. May it be God's word. Because this is life. This is what I need. The psalmist is saying already, you are good, O oh Lord. Your word is good. You, you're giving me, you're giving me a willing heart to learn. You're willing to teach. I, I, the psalmist says, I'm willing to learn at all costs. And if all that be true, and you see what the psalmist, it's happened to the psalmist, may that be true for us too. His word is worth everything more than the thousands of gold and silver pieces. More than the thousands of silver pieces. That's the challenge of the psalmist today to us. That we can, we can join with him in prayer. We can say, God, you are good. We have to begin there. And your word is good. You're a great teacher. And Lord, would you teach me? Would you give me discernment? Would you give me knowledge? Help me to understand that there's nothing out there in the world more valuable Help me to learn, help me to obey, help me to value your word more than anything else. And then with the psalmist, you can praise him. Then with the psalmist, you can say that your word has been, your word is faithful, O oh God, to me, and I praise your name. May that be true for us. Father God, we, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've been to us, Lord. We thank you for the word that you've given us, your word that is life-giving. And so as you teach us, Lord, sometimes you use suffering, sometimes you use, Lord, uh, various tools. But we thank you for your patience with us, Lord, your faithfulness, your steadfast love that we, we sang about and we spoke about and we praised you about. And we pray, Father, that our lives are therefore, Lord, transformed by this, by this word of God that you've given us, the washing of the water by the blood, as we read in Ephesians, that soon and very soon we can say we've been conformed to the image of your Son. So we thank you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all the heads that are bowed. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, amen.